Good morning to you all, and thank you for joining me and for our time in the Word of God again this morning here at Root River Church. Uh, I'm happy to tell you that this will be our last virtual meeting this week, and uh, we'll be back together in person beginning next Sunday, December the 6th. Uh, I do want to, to thank you so much for your patience as we have navigated the last few weeks of, of COVID. Um, we've had many in our church family who have been, who have been ill, uh, and I do want you to know that uh, it is never our, our preference uh, to move to the online model, uh, but we truly want to do the very best that we, uh, that we possibly can to be as careful and to be as responsible as possible. So thank you so much for having been so patient with us these last uh, few weeks as we've done the very best we could uh, with the resources that God has given us to continue to instruct you in the Word of God and to fellowship with you uh, to the greatest extent possible here at Root River Church. I, I want you to know that, that we do love you and our preference is always to be together with you in person. And so the great news is that beginning uh, next week, we will be able to do that again. And I want to encourage you, be sure that you come out uh, next Sunday to be a part of that and, and bring a friend, bring your family, bring your neighbors. Come on out because we are looking forward to a joy, joyful uh, time of worship uh, and fellowship as we grow together in the Word of God. So please be sure that you're here for that. Uh, but there are obviously many churches in the marketplace today, and all of them want people to come to their church. Isn't that how it works? I mean, no one ever opens the door of church on Sunday morning hoping that no one will show up so they can go home early and turn on the football game. Uh, no one ever opens the door Sunday morning with a prayer in his heart that the pastor's family will be the only one that is in attendance that day. And of course, we here at Root River Church are, are no different. We want people to come to church, and we want to do church in person whenever we are able to do that. I mean, wouldn't you just be thrilled if, if, if you were able to see God so fill our church that we had to add additional services every week, and they were all overflowing with people? every Sunday. I mean, wouldn't you be thrilled by that? <clears throat> wouldn't it be great if we grew to such a great extent right here at Root River Church that six months from now, we needed a, a bigger facility, we needed a bigger building to hold all of the people who are coming to worship in our multiple services. Wouldn't that be fantastic? And that's always our prayer, right? I mean, it's God, help us to minister to more people in the city of Franklin. God, give us the opportunity to reach more people for you right here in the city of Franklin. I mean, nobody wants to see their church shrivel up. Nobody wants to see people leave the church. Nobody wants to see attendance drop off. But uh, since the onset of the pandemic, I have spoken to several pastors who have shared how their churches have been impacted by the pandemic. And um, I think the most consistent information that I've received from, uh, from the people that I've spoken to from other pastors indicates that church attendance in general is down by about 50% or even more since the onset of COVID. Uh, I've recently spoken to, uh, to pastors for whom I have a great deal of respect I've spoken to men that I know to be godly men who have kind and compassionate hearts, loving the people of their churches, and you can just hear the disappointment in their voices as they talk about the impact of COVID on their church body. 
I'm hearing that people are leaving churches because of mask policies. Some pastors are told that they don't trust God because they post a sign on the front door in compliance with state law. At the same time, the pastor will shortly after that be told that they don't love God or they don't love the people who, uh, who typically attend their churches because they don't force everyone who walk in the door to wear a mask or maybe because they haven't invested in an expensive filtration system for the church building. People are leaving church because the church was closed on this day or open on that day. And in some cases, I'm hearing that people leave for many other reasons during the pandemic. And in fact, I think that some people just stopped going to church because they probably never really wanted to be there in the first place. And COVID gives them a great reason to not go without anyone judging them and, and making them feel guilty for what they're doing. But then there are people who leave the church for political reasons or whatever it is. And then, of course, there are all the market-based motivators. Do you know what those are? You've heard of them. I mean, every church is trying to appeal to a certain segment of the market. They will study the market, they will break it down, and they will identify the areas of opportunity in their market. I mean, just here in Franklin, a town of what, roughly 36,000 people, there are at least 17 churches, and all of them want you to attend. An internet search of church websites will produce photos of attractive and, and smiling young people in beautiful facilities. You'll likely see keywords and phrases all over their website, words like connect or grow or community, many others. You'll see beautiful children participating in all sorts of fun and colorful programming. You'll see great staging. You'll see cool expressions of worship. Why? Because. Because churches know that the first place that you're going to go when you begin to look for a church is the website. They know that you're going to go to their website. So whatever you're looking for in a church, they want you to see that thing first. They want you to see that right away on their website. And we do the same thing. But the bottom line is that as consumers, we want our church experience to check a certain number of boxes on our wish list. And if not, we will go to one of the other 17 churches in the marketplace that checks more boxes. This church wears masks. That one doesn't. So maybe I base my decision on that. This church has loud guitar-driven worship with contemporary music, and that one over there has an organ and maybe an orchestra, and so I'm going to base my decision on that. But whatever the driver, we choose Churches, we choose based on which church most completely fulfills the needs that we perceive to be most important for our families. So the best experience occurs at the place that most completely fulfills all of those needs. That's just where we are. That's just where... We are in today's church, and I think especially that's true in America's church. We're looking for the best experience. 
We're looking for the best experience. I was really encouraged recently when I stumbled across the results of a new uh, uh, pupil that asked the question, when searching for a church, what is your most important consideration? And I was thrilled to see that 83% of respondents said that the most important factor was the quality of the preaching. Isn't that exciting? 83% of respondents say the most important factor in choosing a church is the quality of the preaching and the teaching. So encouraging. You see, I believe that many people are still looking for quality preaching. I believe that many people are still looking for quality teaching. But the question is, how do you define quality preaching? How do you define quality teaching? And that's what I want to help you understand this morning from a biblical perspective. So to do that today, I'm going to take you back to Acts, the second chapter, and we're just going to take a quick look, and I'm going to help you understand what quality preaching and teaching look like. Well, we remember that Jesus had told his disciples on several occasions that he was going away and that he would send the Holy Spirit to come once he was gone. And then, as Jesus was preparing to return to heaven, he told his disciples in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and unto the very ends of the earth. And then, last week, we came to chapter 2, where we saw God fulfill the promise to send the Holy Spirit. And when that happened, we saw several supernatural phenomena accompanying the arrival of the Holy Spirit. There was, do you remember what they were? There was the sound or the echoes of a strong wind. There were these little things that looked like little tongues that were on fire resting on each one of those who were present. And then there was the speaking of the mighty works of God in the actual foreign languages that none of these people had ever studied before. It was astonishing, and large crowds of people gathered around to see what was going on. So to this point, the promise of Christ was being fulfilled absolutely perfectly. The Holy Spirit came upon them and they received power. And as we saw last week, many people asked, what does this mean? Well, in every group of people, there will always be skeptics and mockers, won't there? Isn't that true? I mean, there will always be those who are able to come up with some clever response to the things of God. When a mighty event of God takes place, there will be some clever mocker, some clever, some clever skeptic who's able to come up with something really funny or, or come up with some idea that makes it seem like nothing significant really happened. And this occasion was no different, was it? I mean, despite the obviously supernatural phenomena which had occurred, there were those who were present who spoke up, mocking, and they were saying, look at those guys, they're all drunk. I imagine that, as if drunkenness somehow enables people to perfectly speak languages that they have never heard before. I mean, how foolish a response is that? But take a look at what happens in verse 14 of chapter 2. But Peter 
standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice, and he addressed them. And he said, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose since it's only the third hour of the day. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. No self-respecting Jew would ever be drunk by nine o'clock in the morning. And especially on a day like this where there is a major festival such as the day of Pentecost. So it was absolutely ridiculous to, to suggest that these men were drunk. But now that I have your attention, there's something that I need to say to you. And this, then, is our model of quality preaching. That's what you're going to see. You see it modeled in the book of Nehemiah as well. And I absolutely love the story in the book of Nehemiah. You remember the story. I mean, after the wall has been reconstructed, Ezra the scribe gathers all of the people together. He stood before all the people where he could be seen, and he brought out the book of the law. He brought out all of the priests, and then in chapter 8 and verse 7, the Bible tells us that they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. Listen, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Do you see what happens here? They read the book of the law, they read the word of God, and they explained what it meant so that people had an understanding of what the Word of God says. They read from the Word of God, and they explained it in a way that people could understand it. Now I want you to take a look at Peter again, who is now full of the Holy Spirit, and as this crowd gathers round, he says in verse 16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And Peter is speaking here from Joel chapter 2. And in verse 17, he goes on and he quotes chapter 2 and he says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Verse 19, now listen closely, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, I want to make sure that we don't get too far into the weeds on this, but I want to sum up for you Joel's thoughts by telling you that Joel had in mind the millennial kingdom and the coming of the Messiah to reign in his earthly kingdom. And we know that because in verse 19, he speaks of wonders in the heaven and on the earth. He speaks of blood and fire and the vapor of smoke. He says the sun will be turned to darkness. He says that the moon will be turned to blood. And as you know, those are all references to the second coming of the Messiah. Understand, we're not talking about the rapture. That is a separate event which predates that. But this is the second coming of the Messiah to establish establish the millennial reign of Christ. That is a time of judgment as Christ establishes his kingdom. Now listen, 
This is important because Peter's audience were devout Jews from all over the known world. And the Jews knew that when Messiah came, he would first come to judge the ungodly and to set up his glorious earthly kingdom. They knew that. And that's why it was so difficult for the Jews to accept a Messiah who was born in a manger and ultimately crucified. Jewish mind. Jesus could not have been the Messiah. He could never have been the Messiah because the Messiah rules and the Messiah judges. The Messiah does not get murdered. See, the problem is they missed the prophecy of the first humble coming. They missed that. They missed the prophecy of the suffering servant and the death of Christ, and they only viewed the Messiah in his role as judge and as ruler. And that's the coming that Joel is talking about here. So Peter then shares the scripture, but he has to do more. It's not enough for him to just share the scripture of Joel 2. He has to do more. He has to explain it to them. So he has to introduce them to Jesus in order to make that happen. Now take a look at verse 22. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. And we'll just stop right there. As we mentioned the last time we were together, the ministry of Jesus was public. He did not conceal his ministry. He did not do anything to hide the fact that he was on the scene ministering. And prior to his ministry, miracles were very, very scattered and limited at best. Maybe in an occasional miracle by an Elijah or an Elisha or someone like that. But there had not been, prior to the ministry of Jesus Christ, there had not been a miracle in the land of Israel for over 400 years. Now, Jesus comes onto the scene, and listen closely, friends, God authenticates the ministry of Jesus Christ, and to do that, he attests to the ministry of Christ by the mighty working of miracles, by wonders and signs that he worked through Jesus Christ publicly. What signs? Well, under the ministry of Jesus Christ, Thousands, even tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people were miraculously and supernaturally healed of congenital illnesses instantly with a spoken word or a touch of Jesus' hand. People with shriveled up legs who had never taken a step in their lives were up and walking. They were jumping. They were running. People who had been blind people who had been deaf from their birth, had their hearing and their vision restored miraculously, instantly. Lepers were made well. The demon-possessed were depossessed. Dead people got up and came to life and began to walk around. Dead people were made alive at the hands of Jesus Christ. These were works that God himself had done through Jesus Christ 
openly, friends, to publicly verify the authenticity of the ministry of Jesus Christ. That's the point. God worked these things through Jesus Christ openly in a bold statement that this is my beloved son. Listen, friends. The miracles of Jesus Christ were not simply so that people could experience a sense of elation or euphoria or relief. The miracles of Jesus Christ were not worked so that people could be set free from physical illness. That wasn't the point of his miracles. The miracles of Jesus Christ were a loud statement that Jesus was on a mission from God. Do you understand? And Peter says, you all know that he did many wonders and signs. He did them right in front of you, and none of you have ever tried to dispute it. None of you have ever tried to deny it. Do you know why no one had ever tried to deny or dispute the miracles of Jesus Christ? Because they couldn't. There were too many witnesses. Everyone had seen them. Take a look at verse 23. Peter says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and you killed at the hands of lawless men. This verse is so rich and we could spend so much time just in this one verse, but that same Jesus whom you know to have been attested by God as the real deal by all of his miracles was handed over by the sovereign choice and the will of God Almighty Himself handed over to you and you unlawfully, you illegally crucified and murdered Him. You wrongly murdered Him. That's what Peter said to those men that day. It was no accident. Jesus was not a victim you see, it was in the plan of God from the very beginning. Jesus was a willing offering who was illegally put to death by the choice of lawless and godless men, but every ounce of it, friends, worked according to God's divine providence. Every ounce of it worked according to God's divine will. Verse 24 says God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it that being death. Then skip down to verse 32 where it says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we're all witnesses. He was dead. You know that he was dead. You were there that day. You saw it. You were screaming for him to be crucified, and you know that he died. You watched as the Roman soldier shoved the spear up under his ribcage and penetrated his heart. You saw it with your own eyes. You know that he was dead, but God raised him up, and we have all seen him with our own eyes. We watched him ascend to the, to the heavens, and now he sets at the exalted position at the right hand of the Father. Friends, listen to me. That is the gospel message. That is the gospel message, friends. Jesus was sent by and approved by God according to God's divine plan from eternity past to be the perfect sinless sacrifice. He was wrongly accused and he was murdered by the very sinners that he had come to save. 
He was the substitute for people who were condemned and dying in their sins and who were on their way to hell. And then God raised him up because it was impossible to keep him dead. It was impossible for death to keep him in the grave. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father and there he is right now interceding on your behalf. That, my friends, is the gospel message and that's what God good preaching is all about. Then after an illustration from Psalm 16, Peter says in verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. God himself has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus that you crucified, by the way. Peter puts them on notice. He tells them that this same Jesus, this very same innocent one that you illegally murdered, this same Jesus who has been resurrected, this same Jesus who has ascended to the Father, this same Jesus is now your Lord and he is Christ. You have killed Jesus, your own Messiah. You have murdered the one you have been waiting for. You have killed your own Savior. And He is not only Messiah, He is your kurios. He is the authority. He is the controller of your lives. He is the supreme master of your life. And if he's not that in your life, then he will be the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel 2 in your lives. Do you see this? If he's not that in your lives, then he will be the judge. He will bring judgment. He will bring condemnation. You either acknowledge that he is the rightful ruler and controller of your life, or one day your knee will bow to him and you will acknowledge him as judge who condemns you. May I just tell you, friends, that this is the essence of quality preaching. What we have seen from Peter here is the model of preaching as we should see it in the church today. You may be surprised to know that there are churches who tell their preachers and their teachers they're not to use words like condemnation or judgment or hell in their pulpits. You may be surprised to know that there are churches who tell their preachers and teachers that they're not to speak of the lordship of Christ. You might be surprised to know that there are churches who tell their preachers and teachers that they are not to speak to people, that they need to submit their lives to the authority and the rule of Jesus Christ. Why is that? It's because it doesn't market well. You see, they attempt to market the message to people who are seeking love and acceptance without first forcing them to face the sad reality of sin and judgment. You see, the truth is that if people don't first come to terms with the facts of sin and judgment in their lives, 
that they will never see the need for forgiveness and grace. They will never see the need for love and acceptance. But unfortunately, those concepts do not speak to the perceived needs of the people that we classify as seekers in our community. You see, unfortunately, Pew researchers didn't ask the question, how do you define quality preaching and teaching? I wonder how they would have responded to that. How do you think they would have responded to that? How would your friends respond to that question? How would your family members and the people in your workplaces answer the question if you were to ask them how they would define quality preaching and teaching? I've heard people say things like, well, this is one of my favorites. It's a message that's not longer than 12 minutes long. That's quality. I've heard others say, it's a sermon that tells me about practical issues like how to reduce anxiety in my life. Or maybe it's something similar. But truly, what is the measuring stick for good preaching? Is it the number of people that sign a commitment card? Is it the number of first-time visitors who make it back for a second visit? Is it the number of first-time visitors on a weekly basis? Is it the number of people who are willing to give financially on a weekly basis? Is it the number of giving units inside the walls of your church? Is that how you define quality preaching and teaching? Let me show you the results of good preaching. Let's go to verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you too will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, as you've seen it today. You see, Peter's message cut to the hearts of his hearers. And it forced them to ask, what shall we do? That's the point. Friends, listen. It's not always popular. And it's not always marketable to properly preach the Word of God. But I want you to know that our goal here is not to be the most popular church in southeast Wisconsin. Our goal is to show the people of southeast Wisconsin the path to forgiveness and right standing before God. We don't do that through carefully crafted and passionately, passionately spoken messages. We do it only through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, it wasn't to bring a satisfying experience that brought them all back the following Sunday. When the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, it was to bring boldness. And it was to bring courage to a preacher who knew that he was inadequate. It was to bring conviction. And it was to cut to the hearts of sinners. Sinners. 
It was to point them to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what it did. Verse 40 says, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added to that day about 3,000 new souls. I'm pretty sure that I'll never preach a message in which 3,000 people commit their lives to Christ. Probably most of you never will either. But friends, I'm convinced that if Root River Church can commit itself to move forward into the community of Franklin under the power of the Holy Spirit, not to offer a marketable church experience, but to boldly preach the message of Jesus Christ without apology. If they would boldly commit themselves to preach the message of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins, God can take the little bit that we have to offer right here at Root River Church, and He can multiply it. And I know that he can reach way more than 3,000 souls. Father, I thank you so much for your kindness and for your mercy. I thank you, Lord, for the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And I ask God that you would empower us to effective witness in our community today. I ask that you would empower us to boldly speak the message about Jesus Christ. I ask that you would... Make us a powerful force for your kingdom right here in the city of Franklin. Help us, God, never to compromise our message, but to preach your word without apology. I thank you, Lord, for your protection over our lives during this difficult season. I ask that you would bring us all safely to worship again together right here at Root River Church next Sunday. Encourage our hearts, I pray, and strengthen us in our faith. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to thank you again for participating with us for our, our final, what we hope will be our final uh, virtual service this morning. I also want to thank you again for your patience. I thank you for your continued faithful giving and just would encourage you to, to be uh, continually faithful in that area. If you would uh, like to give this morning, you can do that by going to our website, rootriverchurch.com, or by mailing your gift to our P.O. Box, which is 32113, right here in Franklin. Uh, we truly do appreciate your partnership in ministry and your generous giving. Please know that Beth and Juan and I will continue, and Teresa as well, to pray for you all this week and to pray for your families and to pray for your children. We love you and we look forward to worshiping with you again right here next Sunday. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face towards you and give you peace. God bless you. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. We look forward to seeing you next week. Have a great afternoon.